1120 WGN. Hello, it's Amy Guth with you till one o'clock today, doing the long haul today. I'm excited about it. Roger Baddish is in the newsroom. Roger Baddish, when was the last time you and I were on there at the same darn time? Um, sometime at the beginning of the century. I mean, <laughs> it's been a while. I was thinking about it and I yeah. really think it was 2010 ish. 2011? Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, it's been yeah, a minute. Yeah, it's been, yeah. It's been a minute. Well, yeah. I'm delighted to be back on with you now. And you, ex- esteemed producer Ashley Bahoon. Hello. Hello, hello. How's it going? Going good. I'm excited. It's been a while since we've worked together, but not as long as not since quite as you've long. worked with Raj. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's been a minute since I've since the Guth and Badish team has been happening. Uh, but yeah, well. The A-team's all here. Joe Brand's here. Man, this is fun. This is going to be awesome. Hi, Amy. Joe, how are you? I'm doing okay. Actually, do you remember, I think, geez, five years ago, I produced for one of your shows. Yes. Uh, it was like two in the morning. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> of course you remember. <laughs> but no, I remember that day you brought in uh, little jams, little ho- homemade jams, I think. That's right. Did you? Do you still do that? I do. Okay. I, I have it. That's what I'm going to do this weekend. After I leave here, I'm going to go make all the jam. I think I'm going to do lemon blackberry this year. Oh, wow. I, I, uh, I'm going to do that one. I like to give people, look, I think people have, we have enough stuff in our lives. You know what I mean? Like, we've got stuff. I don't know. So I like to give people stuff that doesn't clutter their lives and stuff that can be useful again. So I give them, like, I make jam and I bake stuff and give people little baskets of stuff. So I then like that. you can eat it, you consume it, and then what you're left with is maybe like a couple of cloth napkins, some jars you can use, and a basket. Like, those are okay. Sometimes the cloth napkin is optional. Sometimes I just use like tissue paper because then it's like, you know, because what's worse than when someone's like, here, I got you a giant statue of a thing. You're like, oh, good. <laughs> that you better enjoy. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. In a year, I expect to see it up on the shelf when I come and visit. That's yeah. right. Yeah. I know. I know. So things like that, because I don't want people to feel weird. But like, who doesn't love jam? Right. And then you can use the jar to organize things so you don't have as much clutter later. Exactly. I'm all about the efficiency and all about like not making people feel obligated of things. So that's what I'm doing. That's what I'm feeling. But you know what? Right now, we've got so much coming up on the show today. I'm almost like, ow, I am. I maybe I have too many people. That's okay. There's no such thing as too much knowledge. I love to learn from the guests. I love to bring smart people in here and just learn from them. I hope that you all do too. We are going to do a thing coming up here in just a bit. We're talking with Brenda Bernstein. She's going to join us by phone. Who knew? Listen to her titles. She is a certified master resume writer. She's a certified executive resume writer. She's a certified advanced resume writer. I did not know those were certifications you could even have. But nonetheless, she has them. She's also author of a book called uh, Resumes, Cover Letters, Professional Bios, Personal Statements, and LinkedIn Profiles. So she's going to... She's going to work it out, right? She's going to help us, you know, take our LinkedIn profiles and resumes from zero to hero is what she's going to do. So we're going to take a little break, get ready to talk with her. She's got some, she's got an awesome little takeaway, like a, um, what am I trying to say? It's a list with bullet points of like how to have, it's called how to write a killer LinkedIn profile. So if you're following me on Twitter, I'm going to be sharing links to everything we talk about today. I've already tweeted with her handle in there so you can find her website and all that stuff and find out about her as we're talking and being be looking for all that good stuff. And then a little bit later, we're going to be talking about biometric screening. Those clear kiosks have recently gone in at O'Hare. So we're going to be talking about that. So we have a, we have a CEO who works in that identity verification and biometric realm. He's joining us by phone from London. I'm telling you, and that's 
that's just the next half hour. So we've got stuff to do. So I better go. So we're going to take a break and be right back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Okay. See if we can catch up. 720 WGN. Good morning. Hello. It's Amy Guth in here with you till one o'clock long haul today. I'm excited about it. I've got a bunch of guests to share with you. I cannot wait for all the guests, my friends, including this guest who's joining us by phone right now. That's Brenda Bernstein. She's a certified master resume writer. How cool is that? That's like the, she's the ninja of resumes. She's also a certified executive resume writer and a certified advanced resume writer. She's going to help us get our resumes and our LinkedIn's looking sharp for the year ahead. Brenda, welcome to the program. Thank you, Amy. Excited to be here. I'm so glad you could join us. Thanks for taking part of your Saturday to do so. So talk to us. What are the mistakes most people are making with their resumes and their LinkedIn profiles? Well, I guess there would be some different ones depending on the resume and the LinkedIn profile. Uh, So one of the things, the main mistake that people make with their resumes is talking about all their job duties and responsibilities without digging down into their actual accomplishments and the results that they created and the impact that they made on an organization. That is the absolute number one mistake. And a lot of people think, oh, in my line of work, there just isn't anything to say. But if you ask the right questions, there always is. That is a great tip. I love that to put accomplishments versus duties. That's really important. And I, I feel like I see that a lot. People, I thought, I don't know that people really take advantage of that, that little summary under each job section on resumes and LinkedIn. They'll just be like duties included, you know, this, 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 and this. But it's like, no, if, but then you talk to them and you're like, oh, wow, you won an award during that time at that job or you did this cool thing. I want to know about that. I think that's a really, really important tip for sure. And you also exactly. have, you also have a great list that goes along with your book how to write a killer LinkedIn profile. Um, Everybody, go to KillerLinkedInProfile.com. You can find the book, but you can also find this awesome checklist of all the things you need to be doing on your LinkedIn profile. I went through mine, and I'm like, you know what? I, I mean, first of all, I need to update mine. It is uh, it, it is woefully out of date. But also, there's there's like three or four that I'm like, ooh, that's a good tip. I got to do that. I got to do that for sure. So where oh, great. where are the things? Um, when I mean, it's a long list. There's that, right? Where do you suggest someone start? If they're like, oh, I have a LinkedIn, it's whatever. What's the most important thing on that list? Well, I want to I want to talk about one thing that's related to both resumes and LinkedIn profiles, which is that and you mentioned summaries. And at the top of your resume, you have a summary. In that summary on the resume, you get to talk about yourself and I would invite people and encourage people to say specific things about what you did versus this very general description of your position that could describe anyone who holds your position. And then the next mistake that people make with LinkedIn is they don't take the time to actually write a summary. It's now called the about section, but people don't take the time to actually sit there and write the 2000 characters that they have available. And instead they take that summary section from the resume, which already might not say much. And then they copy and paste it into LinkedIn and they think they have a LinkedIn summary. The fact is that you have a lot more leeway to talk about yourself and to express your personality through that LinkedIn about section. So that's one really important piece about LinkedIn. Um, Now, of course, people are very visual. So the first thing that they see on LinkedIn is your photo. 
That's always the first thing people notice. So you want to make sure that you don't have the same photo on LinkedIn that, you know, you have on Facebook with your cat or with your friends or with a drink that's all cropped out. You don't want to do that. Uh, you want to make sure that your LinkedIn photo is really professional and expresses. I like to encourage people to think of three words they want to convey through their LinkedIn photo and through their, their headshot. And then get a photo shoot and make sure you capture those three things. So you're really showing your best side on LinkedIn. Another tip that you have on this list is to make sure that you have at least 500 connections. Why is that uh, an important number? In a way, your LinkedIn profile is the beginning of your interview. And people care in many professions about how well you are networked. Are you a person that people want to be around in the office? And the size of your network is somewhat of an indication. So that is one reason. If you have below 500, it shows up as the actual number of connections you have. And so everyone knows that you don't have 500 connections. And a lot of people on LinkedIn have that 500 plus. Once you get over that, you can't see exactly how many unless you dig a lot deeper. So that's one reason. The other reason is that if you want to be found on LinkedIn or if you want to easily find the people you're looking for on LinkedIn, if anyone does a search, the first results that come up are your first degree connections. Those are the people you are directly connected to. Next come the second degree connections. Those are the ones that your first degree connections are connected to. So those results show up in that order. If you don't have a lot of first-degree connections, you're not going to even find the people that you want, and you're not going to be found by people, even if they do a search on your actual name. You might not actually be found on LinkedIn if you don't have a big enough network. That's a really important tip. That makes perfect sense. Also on this list are to, um, if you are unemployed, I think that's a big one. I've heard, you know, in the business that we're in, there's always a lot of changes. There's a lot of stuff. It's a kind of a strange time to be in the journalism and broadcast world, nonetheless. Um, so sometimes in any field, though, right, there's, you know, gaps and things like that. And people are actively looking for work. And I've heard a lot of people say that, like, well, I don't really know what to put on my resume right now because I have this gap. I don't know what to put on LinkedIn because I have this gap. I'm actively looking. And I think there's a little stigma. A lot of people don't want to say that they're unemployed. They want to say they're working on projects, looking for the next thing, things like that. How do you address that, uh, like a gap in employment or specifically currently being unemployed on your LinkedIn profile? Well, I would say it's good to put something in the current experience because that helps you in terms of your ranking on LinkedIn. So you can always put your job title, even if there's not an actual organization associated with it. You can write in the organization spot. You can say seeking new opportunities as your organization. Uh, some recruiters like that because they know that you're available. You can also use the open candidates feature on LinkedIn to let recruiters know you're available, by the way. But it is a little tricky. You know, if you don't feel comfortable doing that, you might need to put an end date. I would say the, the most important thing is tell the truth. So if you call yourself a consultant, but then you walk in into an interview and they ask you, oh, tell me about your consulting business and you don't actually have any clients, that's not good. So don't put it there just because it sounds good. If you are doing consulting work, then absolutely put it there for your current position. And sometimes you really do need to just write an end date 
to the end of your last job and leave it at that. Yeah, that's a that's a good tip. I like that. That's a really important one. Another tip on this list that I think is so smart and so good that if you're bilingual, create a secondary language profile. I think that one gets overlooked a lot and it'll be, you know, at the bottom of the summary and like, also, I speak Spanish or also I'm bilingual Italian, whatever. I think that's a great tip to make that secondary language profile. Absolutely. If you do speak two languages, not everyone knows that that's an option on LinkedIn. So definitely look at that. And I have an article on how to create a secondary language profile on LinkedIn. And LinkedIn has help topics as well. So I definitely encourage you to read that. That's one of my my most popular articles that I've ever written is the one about creating a secondary language profile. So it does apply to a lot of people. And that way, people who are looking for you in your native language will find you and people looking for you in the other language will also find you. That's so, so, so good. Well, we're running out of time. I wish I had like an hour and a half, like two hours with you. I feel like there's so much knowledge you have to help us all get our, you know, get our our resumes and our LinkedIn looking sharp for the year ahead. Here's the thing. I think even when you're not looking for a job, it's important to be current. Um, The best advice I ever got was from a mentor early in my career. She said, update your resume as soon as you get that new job and then keep updating it every time you have a great day because you're going to write something a lot more positive than if you leave that job, you're going to be like, oh, you know, you're, you're, you're not going to be thinking about all the things that um, you accomplished there. You're not going to be thinking about it in the same light. She was like, keep your resume current all the time. I think that was really good. That is great advice. Absolutely. So you always want to be taking note of your accomplishments and your metrics and your numbers and anything good that happened. Just keep a little notes file on your phone if that works for you and make sure you put something in there. When there's something you want to remember for your resume or put it right onto your resume. And I do have an article about that too. There, September is actually update your resume month. I'm sure it's not, you know, it's not like a, you don't get school off for update your <laughs> resume month. Unfortunately, you know, it's not quite as good as a snow day, but, um, <laughs> but there's a lot of great information in that article that I wrote about update your resume month. So I'd encourage people to take a look there as well. You have so many, um, so many wonderful articles. Where can people find them, contact you? I'm sure there's a lot of people wanting to know more about your really interesting credentials of, of these certifications that you have in the realm of executive resumes and things like that. Yes. So, of course, I have um, a couple of books. How to Write a Killer LinkedIn Profile is a, is a very popular one. And then I have How to Write a Stellar Executive Resume and How to Write a Winning Resume. So you can definitely get a lot of information through my books. Also, I have a blog on my website. It's uh, www.theessayexpert.com. That's T-H-E-E-S-S-A-Y-E-X-P-E-R-T, theessayexpert.com. So you can definitely check out my blog there. And connect with me on LinkedIn, Brenda Bernstein on LinkedIn. I'd be happy to accept your invitation. I would encourage you to write me a customized note and that is another big mistake people make on LinkedIn is reaching out to people and using that standard blah, you know, packaged introduction. So take the time to write a note. Let me know that you heard me on the Amy Goose Show. 
Awesome. Well, thanks so much, Brenda. I really appreciate your time. And for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and share all the links that Brenda just mentioned so you can find them yourself. But yeah, go find her on LinkedIn, everybody. Go do that. But of course, first, look at the list that I'm going to tweet out. Make sure your LinkedIn profile looks good. Then go find her because you don't want to, you know, show up looking all disheveled with a LinkedIn expert for crying out loud. (laughs) Yes, but if you do, then I will tell you what you can be doing better. Even better. Okay, there's that, everybody. So thank you so much, Brenda. I really appreciate your time. We will have you back on again because I think this is a topic we need to revisit often. Thank you so much for your time today. Absolutely. Thank you, Amy. All right. So we are going to take a little break and get you to news here in just a little bit. On the other side of news, we're going to be talking about biometrics and data privacy. That conversation kind of bubbled up a couple of weeks ago when we got those clear kiosks, clear the brand, which is like a um, it's a screening company, right? We got those kiosks at O'Hare. And so we're going to be talking with the CEO of Viridium. He is, uh, that's a company that's all about data privacy and biometric screening and all this and all the ways that that, um, you know, that touches a lot of topics is what. So we're going to be talking with him. He's joining us by phone from London here in just a bit on 720 WG. WGN. It's Amy Guth. Thanks so much for being with me today. I'm with you here till one o'clock today. That's a good jam, Ashley. Thanks for playing that. I like that. That's one of those songs that's like, you know, you have to come back from break, but you just kind of want to chill and listen to it for a minute. That's a good one. You always play good, good tunes. I appreciate you. All right, everybody. So we were just talking with Brenda Bernstein about awesome resumes and doing all the things on LinkedIn. Let's shift a little bit in topics. Now we are joined by James Strickland. He is the CEO of Viridium, which is a really interesting company we're going to learn about. But I want to bring him on right now because we talk so much. I know I talk so much on this station about data privacy and in the technology space, that's something we're thinking about a lot. And we're moving more into biometric screening, which is an interesting topic, but it came up really boldly recently when Clear moved their kiosk and moved their company into O'Hare. So it's a different way to get through TSA screening a little bit faster. So all interesting stuff. So I wanted to bring James Strickland on to talk about that. James, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us us today. Thank you. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate and I'm, I'm so glad we were able to coordinate the time. You're, you're joining us from London. And so I appreciate that the time worked out and all that. So to start, tell us a bit about the work that you do at your company. Uh, yes. So Viridium is a biometric authentication company. Um, so we uh, are responsible for building um, software that, that's being used by enterprises and consumers to provide authentication capabilities um, and to be able to use biometrics as the form of authentication measure. So tying your biometrics to a, to a you know, credible or trusted source. Which is such an interesting topic. As I said, one I've talked about a lot on this station. You know, two ways that I think it comes up a lot is when we're talking about the screening process for, you know, as I said here, we just got the clear, you know, clear um, kiosks here at O'Hare at our airport. Um, but also, you know, when we think about... So, so much of the gig economy is about your your rating on the work that you do. And we could spend hours talking about the pluses and minuses of the gig economy. And I think I have many times. But, you know, when we're looking into um, more, we're, more of ways that we are 
um, sharing our identity or verifying the identity of, of, I'm thinking in particular of like Lyft and Uber and things like that. You're in a car with a stranger and there's been a lot of discussion around when that verification process has gone wrong. So, so where does, you know, biometrics brings that to a very different level. Talk to me about that a bit in that space, if you would. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. So, um, you know, biometrics are a, are a fabulous, um, you know, opportunity to provide, you know, strong um, identity and verification. Um, but obviously, to your point, and I know you've talked about it, you know, numerous times, you know, it, it's all essential that we manage it in the most uh, data-sensitive fashion. So, you know, we saw Uber um, in the UK and in, in London lose its license recently for for kind of misuse um, of, uh, of onboarding um, individuals. Um, so, you know, the inability to be able to verify actually who was the, the relevant driver. Um, and obviously, there were a number of cases where you know, there were, you know, heinous activities that, that happened through the back of that. Mm-hmm. Um, so, obviously, you know, using identity and using biometrics can be massively powerful. Um, but obviously, to your point, you know, we need to ensure that when we do that, we do that in a way in which, you know, the user or the, the employee couldn't potentially get compromised and their data be repurposed inappropriately. And and that's exactly where I wanted to go next with that, because I think it seems like, okay, for security, great. But then you start thinking about all the data that is available and having that secure. And I think it becomes this kind of, there's an inherent tension in that, right, of, of we want to have the best security and the best screening, but also there's a lot of data out there. And I think especially as people are... Um, giving, you know, I, I think this has come up again this time of year, because people are giving each other like those DNA test kits for gifts. And, right. and a lot of think pieces have kind of been going, you know, maybe, maybe don't do that. Maybe think that through before you do that, or, or at least think about what you're giving people and make sure that's cool with them before you go sending your DNA off. So I, I think there's a there's an inherent tension there between what data we're putting out into the data ecosystem versus our, our, you know, protecting our safety to in a in the most cutting edge way possible. No, I, I think you're, you're absolutely, you know, right in the sweet spot. I think, you know, we kind of liberally give away our data. You know, we'd give an organ away for free Wi-Fi. Um, you know, while we're uh, while we're kind of logging in at you know malls or you know uh, you know Starbucks, for example, but we really don't think about the data that we're giving up and. And obviously, we're, we're busily using biometrics, you know, on our own cell phones, um, you know, for, for touch ID or face ID or fingerprint from Apple, which is great, you know, fabulous that it's managed in the secure enclave of that device. But obviously, we're now starting to utilize our biometrics and give it away far more liberally, you know, in enterprise, you know, scenarios and situations. So people are using voice recognition. Well, you know, voice recognition is being installed by the enterprise um, that you're working with. So... Yeah, there's, there's a lot of simplicity that comes with the use of biometrics, which we're obviously we all demand and we all desire, um, but we don't ask the question. I don't think personally, I, you know, I'm the CEO of a company, company in this field. We don't ask enough who's responsible, how they manage that data, and, and where does it sit? Um, you know, in uh, you know, in their ecosystem and in their security environments. There are ways that we can administer it more effectively. Um, you know, and obviously, you know, not to, to plug us too much, but we. We specifically have built a way of being able to to shard the content so nobody owns it, um, which is the kind of you know key fundamental that I believe is using biometric is the best. Uh, but obviously, you need to ask the questions and be more intelligent with its utilization. And so, what is that approach in a nutshell of, of making the data ownerless? 
and so so the, the way that we built the the software with Viridium would be to say no one single party should have to be a custodian. So as you start to go through the process of enrolling for whatever service it might be, you know, uh, you know, movies or you know, working at your enterprise, you know, um, in your in your business operations, you would enroll the individual. You'd actually encrypt the content and then shard the biometric minutiae. So in very simple terms, we tear. Uh, what looks like biometric, we turn it into a set of data points and then we tear it in and shard it into multiple locations. So we have multiple parties that own those pieces of data so that only when those keys kind of come together does it give a verified event. So in that instance, you know, you wouldn't have to have your bank, um, you know, or your retailer owning a whole portion of your biometrics. You'd only have a piece of data, which is a sharded piece of data that couldn't be recreated. That's a very that's a very interesting idea and an interesting approach I think because that that seems to be the the resistance from businesses to moving to this is either well okay we're going to take a lot of data and own it and have the responsibility of that and we've seen that backfire on companies so many times or they're like ah I don't want to get into the data business I don't want to go there so I'll just kind of you know wing it I think interestingly too of note your background is in the financial services realm and so those that's an interesting intersection to come in because you you're probably you know applying this to a lot of financial we're thinking about our DNA we're thinking about screenings and security but when we move into the financial realm with this that's a whole other interesting conversation too yeah, it is, and you know, and I, I came at this to your to your point from from banking and finance. So, you know, I I really see a a, a world where we could use our biometrics to form, um, you know, payment uh, mechanisms and, and actually take away all the plastic that we have in our um, current payment ecosystem. Um, you know, I, I see it as a way of of onboarding customers in in regions and and kind of countries where you know there aren't passports or credit histories. Um, or even, um, you know, or even addresses in some countries. So, you know, we're working in places like Senegal, where bizarrely there's 140% mobile penetration, but less than 25% banks. So, you know, imagine a world which is, you know, completely on its head, um, where you can actually use mobiles to, to enhance or enable a, a banking ecosystem and use the biometrics as the form of, of verification or identity and actually remove the need of a you know a you know historic way of doing this, which is you know previously based on our our credit you know and our, our kind of credit ratings histories and our address history. So yeah, finance I think is a great place to, to deliver this. Payments I think is a fabulous way of delivering this. Um, and and I actually think that you know we're we're starting to see a lot of our uh, you know major providers now utilize this to form the kind of connection with identity, but also ongoing authentication. Yeah. And then we, beyond that, there's the other realm that I think is really fascinating of behavioral biometric authentication. Really interesting there because that seems that seems like a thing so far off in the future, and yet it, yet not at all. That's that's looking um, well. You're going to be able to explain it more than I can, but but you know this is your realm. But we're talking about mannerisms and and your gait and patterns of behavior. How is that in layman's terms? How is that? shaping up how is how does that begin to kind of work and how do people get their heads around how that part of it works yeah so um i mean in europe um we've uh, we kind of started with the the touchless payments mechanism as a good example where you know we trusted um you know you with a device um to be able to verify that uh, you could take a small payment you know up to 30 uh, 30 pounds at, at the time in the uk 
Uh, and what we're now starting to utilize is is the behavior and the, the activities that you generate, the physical heuristics that you uh, administer. So the way you would hold a device, the pressure points that you would put, the speed and the, the gait of your work, walk to your point, um, you know, even down to the amount of times or the frequency of your logins and, and where you log in. I mean, it sounds wildly big brotherish and, and, and certainly super scary. Um, again, the way that we administer and the way that we manage that data is super important so that it doesn't become a, you know, a build pattern of you. Um, and then obviously we can start to use that, that detail to build a behavioral pattern of you as an individual. So we can now start to make events that are, again, relatively low risk or, or certainly lower risk. Maybe it's seeing your balance um, of your bank account or maybe it's making a payment of, you know, sub $25 or, you know, maybe it's a repeat prescription or a repeat order of something that you may have um, made on numerous occasions. So we can start to bring that r- real simplicity and that real intelligence around user behavior to life using behavior. Now, that, I think, is fabulous if you use it in conjunction with what we call explicit biometrics or explicit authentication, you know, faces and fingerprints, things that actually are truly you and obviously give us a much higher representation. Very, very interesting topic. When we look ahead, when maybe not too far in the future, but just kind of in the next maybe year or two, what innovations do you believe or maybe you'd like to see most in this realm of, of data security and biometrics and, and this whole area? What's coming? What's next? And, and what do you hope for? So I, I think the, the, the sort of next um, opportunity over the, the, the coming kind of, you know, maybe even 12 and 24 months is this sort of self-sovereign, um, you know, identity. So, you know, in this, um, you know, kind of brave new world, which is running at, you know, at 10,000 miles an hour, we actually have an opportunity to take ownership of our own data. Uh, and what I'd like to see, and, and the technology is available to be able to do that, what I like to start to see is people owning their own identity and their own biometrics. So you or I could uh, could administer them um, and give approval for them to be utilized for you know, new account openings or um, you know or new services that you're subscribing to, um, and in that in doing that you can actually participate financially. Um, so we've all sort of seen our our data resold on you know numerous numerous occasions and, and over and over again because we tick the you know the, the acknowledge um, button by you know by accident or by by laziness or, or without wanting to read the. 12 pages of terms and conditions, and we've seen our kind of content being resold, you know, over and over and over again. With identity um, and your, you know, potentially even your biometrics, we can actually start to retake control of that and participate in wallets and some degree of financial outcome where, you know, we actually win in this, um, as well as we're actually more secure because we're going to own that self-sovereign data. I think that's so important, and I think this conversation is one we need to keep having over and over. I mean, I've said on this station many, many times that I've really encouraged everybody listening locally to watch what happens in European courts, because I feel like European courts have taken uh, taken data in a very, you know, taken it in a more seriously to to some extent, but it's just considered in a different way there than it is here. And so I've always occurred. I've always saying everybody watch European courts, watch what happens, watch how it's treated. It's it's addressed in a different way. So so I think this is a very interesting topic and one we need to keep talking about and keep talking about often. Well, for for those listening who might want to connect with you and learn more about Viridium, perhaps a business owner that's interested in doing work together, how can they best get in touch with you? 
And so, uh, you know, by the website's always a great way. So we're, we're Viridium, V-E-R-I-D-I-U-M-I-D dot com. Um, we're super happy to, to help people. I, I'm personally incredibly passionate about educating people, as, as I know you are, you know, about this space. I, I urge everybody to get more intelligent um, and not just kind of give away our content liberally because I think, uh, you know, we've seen it, it come back and bite us with our credit details being exposed, and, and I really wouldn't want the same with our personal data. So, yeah, happy to happy to help, happy to educate. Yeah, I think I totally agree with you. I think that's a um, a very important thing, especially in terms of service, because it's either you're in or you're out. It's not like a contract where we get to say, okay, I'm with you on this part, but not this. I don't strike this one. Let's make an amendment. That's you know, Facebook is. Are you doing this or you're not? So I think this is a, a topic we need to talk about so much and we cannot possibly talk about it too much so i really appreciate your time today and again for those of you who follow me on twitter i'm tweeting out links to to everything we're talking about right now so follow me there i'm at amy guth you can find viridium you can find james strickland the ceo thanks so much for being with us today thanks so look forward to it thanks so much all right we're gonna take a little break back in just a bit here on 720 wgn 720 WGN. It's Amy Guth. Thanks for being with us. I get so darn passionate about that topic that we were just talking about, Ashley. I think that is so important, the way we're thinking about data, because, you know, as we were just talking with the the CEO of Iridium, James Strickland, as he said, we will we give away our data without even thinking about it. You know, we're like, oh, it's fun. I'm going to get find out my ancestry. That's fun. I want to see where my ancestors were from. Cool. Meanwhile, your data is stir- is stored. And that's a big thing. I mean, th- those are the smaller ways we do it. Um, you know, there's the, um, as I said, clear has been that's a way you can get through TSA screening a little faster at O'Hare, but there, it raises questions of like, where is my data? Okay, you can scan my eyeball and get my fingerprints and all that stuff, but what happens then? And, you know, I think data's fine. There's nothing wrong with data. Data's great. Technology is great. I love it. It's when we don't think it through because there's always these like unintended consequences. It seems like just a couple of steps away, a couple of days away in the future. Um, so I appreciated talking with him. And I appreciated speaking with somebody in Europe as he was because data privacy has been, as I said, regarded very differently by European courts than it has by American courts. We're just now trying to start untangling ourselves because of like Cambridge Analytica. We're like, wait a minute. Did we get played? Hang on. Did did Facebook play us? I'm not going to be played. That's what made us jump about it. But even then, it's hard to understand. There's a lot to it. So I love this. You know, it's a completely it's rethinking completely the idea of like owning your own biometric, owning your own data as a like a as a data wallet. It's a complicated topic, but it's also fascinating. And I think we should all learn more about it. Yeah, I think it's it's also very important because a lot of the times when we do those ancestry mm-hmm. things or like that face app where they make you look older or younger when they just scan your face and they know it so perfectly or yeah. um, when you you can do certain things where if you take somebody's face and you take a couple of words from that they say you can create a whole sentence that sounds like their voice just from what? using those cool yeah there's like there's cool computer programs now where if you say a couple of words into this program you can type up a sentence and the computer recreates your voice just from what it remembers from certain certain words that's oh like a God. whole other thing yeah so it's like there's a lot of things you can do with technology and it's awesome but it's like 
it's so smart that it's like, where is it going after you use it for your fun, goofy joke on your friend to make them right. say something goofy or whatever it is, even though they're not saying it. It's the computer generating the, the tone of the voice. Right. There's always like, um, sometimes there are unintended consequences. And I need to go, I've, I've referenced this before and I forgot to look it up at the time. There is a specific term for this kind of contract that we have with terms of service where either use it or don't. You know, think about it. If you and I were going to I don't know, start a business, Ashley, and we are going to um, have a contract of working together. We'd sit down and work through all the details of it, right? And we'd say, okay, you're going to do this. I'm going to do this. And then we'd kind of negotiate a piece and change the contract. Facebook, it's like, do you agree? Yes or no? This right. app, do you agree? Yes or no? These are the terms of service. That's it. You can't, and there's, there's a term, there's a word for that type of contract and it's a legal word and I can't remember what it is because there's, that's, I'm not a lawyer. I should be. <laughs> I wish I was. Um, because I always feel like I need a lawyer on speed dial because I always have questions that come up on the air. Like, is that legal? Is that a thing you can do? Uh, usually around, um, around like, um, intellectual property and, and cre- right. creative projects and music and things like that of like, who owns that? Um, so I should, we should just have like a resident lawyer sitting around. Yeah, just we like, should, we? we should just have like a speed dial <laughs> on call lawyer with all the questions. I know we need the legal face off team to just exactly. be on here all the time. They have a great show with, they, they do a good job of connecting the law to news topics, which I, I, I think it's, I have no desire to be a practicing lawyer. I just wish I had all that knowledge of having gone to law school. I'm not going to go do that, but I think <laughs> it would be interesting knowledge. And I, I love being around smart people to learn from them. So, um, but yeah, I, I liked talking with uh, the CEO of Viridium, James Strickland, just now because it raises a lot of those questions. Again, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm going to tweet out some links to some of those. I'll, I'll On the break, I'll find some stories about um, how European courts have treated data a little bit differently. Um, it, it's just really interesting. It's like the right to be forgotten is a term that that's used a lot in Europe of, of you can, you have the right to get your, get your stuff out of Google, out of Google search results or out of data, um, the various data platforms, which I think is okay, which I think is okay, you know, because we're so encouraged, um, and rightly so to like, you know, get out there, put your, um, you know, work your brand, be on social media platforms. And we absolutely should. You should control the narrative about you or not control the narrative, but participate in the narrative about you, you know, and participate in your own fate and branding and all of those things. And I like interacting with people on social media and especially during the show, things like that. I love that. But then the downside is like, but what is being known about me? And that's the thing is, is I think that's, that's really the the point is I don't mind there being data what I mind is I don't know how it's used and I should own that. I should, we should all own and have the right to know how our data is being used. And that's really kind of what came up with Facebook. Um, there is a great documentary called The Great Hack. It's, it's not perfect. I have, if you've seen it, send me a tweet because I want to talk to somebody who's, who's, um, who's also seen it. When I watched it on Netflix, I kept like hitting pause to just kind of write things down. It is, it is about Cambridge Analytica and Facebook and all of that data and really kind of making the case for what, how it shook out, how that happened and, and makes you really feel like a sucker at the end because you're like, whoa, we definitely got played, but it's not perfect. There's a couple of people on there that are, I think, painted as sympathetic characters. One in particular that I don't think is a sympathetic character that, that I don't totally trust, but the, but the person is, is painted like, um, I don't want to say like a victim, but certainly as a sympathetic character. So 
We shall see. All right. Lots more to do on the show. When we come back, we are going to be talking with the co-founder and editor of The State Cider, which is such a cool, cool site and newsletter. If you love travel writing, I love good travel writing. I love food writing and travel writing. And you know what? The State Cider often does both, mostly travel, but once in a while there's food in there too. It is so good. And it's, it's a collection of some of the best travel writing. We're going to talk with the, the uh, co-founder and editor here in just a bit, joining us from the West Coast. We're all over the place with time zones today. Holy moly. It's cool. But that's what we're going to do and talk about some travel, really thoughtful, wonderfully written travel work there. So we're going to take a break here in a minute minute or so. We're going to do news. I I errantly, I like lost track of time and I said we're going to do news at the 30. No, we're doing news at the, at the top of the hour, not the bottom of the hour. That's a thing. All right. So we're going to take a break, get you the news, all that good stuff back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty, WGN. It's Amy Guth. Thanks for being with me today. I appreciate you sharing part of your Saturday with me. I am real excited about our next guest. We are joined by phone from the West Coast by Pam Mandel, who is the co-founder and editor of the State Cider, which is. Which, I'm telling you, the first time I laid eyes on the State Cider, I was like, I got to talk to these folks because this is such a cool thing that they are doing. I'm going to let her explain it. Pam, welcome to the program. I'm so glad you're joining us today. Thank you. Hi, thanks for having me. Certainly. So tell everyone about the State Cider, please, because you're going to do a much better job talking about it than I will since you build the thing. Right. So the short version of the State Cider is that we curate and create what we think are the most interesting stories about travel and culture in the United States. What I love is on the... We've been work- I'm sorry, go ahead, go ahead. Go ahead. Well, I was just saying, Okay, we've the- been working on it for about a year now, and it's very much a passion project between the three of us, myself, uh, my co-founder, Andy Murdoch, and our Midwest Diner correspondent, Doug Mack. There is a great line on your website that I love, and I'm going to read it exactly as it is, and that is, think of us as a weekend travel section for America. We're only selling one thing, the idea that our country is immense, diverse, and infinitely interesting. I love that. There's so much great stuff. So how did you first come up with the idea for the State Cider? (laughs) So it's really funny. Uh, I was thinking about that this morning, and there is actually a post on the website about how Andy and I came to be in a Denny's having breakfast at 11 at night in Elko, Nevada at the National Cowboy Poetry Gathering. And we had gone to this event, which is an iconic, um, I don't even know what to call it, because <laughs> it was so unexpected, an iconic gathering of poets and musicians and people interested in the culture of the West. And we were eating breakfast food at 11 p.m., like I said, in a well-lit late-night denny. And we started talking about the ideas that define what is the West and what is America. And this whole thing sort of evolved into the State Cider, where we wanted to present a more nuanced and colored-in version of the depth of culture, the diversity of stories, the complexities of what America looks like. I love that idea so much. And, and I said a little bit earlier on the show, it's it's travel writing. It, it's in it's such a different way. 
And it's so thoughtfully put together and so thoughtfully curated that I don't know anything quite like it. And and I am a big fan of travel writing and food writing are two of my favorite things in the entire world. And you bring both of those things together so beautifully and so wonderfully. What is that process of collecting? Because this newsletter comes out and it, often there's themes or little clusters of, of here's, you know, five things around this one topic in, in this in the kind of the subheadings of it. How do you begin? How is that? What is that gathering process? Process like to curate all this wonderful stuff? So between the three of us, we read a lot. And that I think that's apparent. We just do a lot of reading. A lot of our stories come from Twitter. They come from our collective feeds or people are increasingly throwing us ideas via our statesider feed. The other thing that we'll do is like we'll talk about a theme. We'll come across something. I recently saw a graphic that talked about the changing religious distribution across the United States. And I put the graphic in our Slack feed. We communicate via Slack. And I said, hey, this seems like a really interesting topic. We could find stories that talk about, you know, the changing religious demographics of the United States. We throw these ideas in, and then we see if we can find enough work to support it. You know, we recently did our an issue about shopping malls, and we have a friend who worked at the Mall of America for a while, and we thought, you know, let's talk about, like, the changing culture of shopping malls. Who goes to malls? Mall food courts are incredible destinations and don't get enough coverage as a place to go eat when you're traveling, for example. So we get these ideas, and we see if we can make it stick. I mean, easy enough, but but easy. I'm sure way <laughs> you make it sound so much easier uh, I, than it than it actually is. I am such a fan of the work that you do, as I said, and I think it's so interesting. What are some of the dream topics for you that you haven't been able to tackle yet, or you haven't been able to curate enough information around, but you really, really want to ta- tackle in the year ahead? Oh gosh, yeah, that's a really great question. We are dying to do an issue that gathers travel stories by Native American authors within the U.S. And to be perfectly candid, we would like to be able to pay for that, and we don't have the funding to do it. So that is absolutely a dream project for us, is to figure out how to get the funding to build an issue where Native American writers write about traveling in the U.S. We've also been talking about how to tackle the issue of the idea that nostalgia about American travel seems to be a pretty uh, Caucasian experience. And when you talk to minorities about nostalgia about American travel, it is just not a great experience. And I don't want to default to a lazy green book type analogy, but that is a sort of catch-all for what it's like for non-white travelers in the U.S. And we would love to be able to tackle that issue in a thoughtful way written from the perspective of diverse voices, not just our own. Mm, that's very interesting. I, I'm, I'm looking forward to you tackling that topic. That's a really interesting one. And, you know, you touch on something I think is important. This is an independent project. This is not backed by a big publication or media company, something like that. This is an independent project that I, I, I love coming upon independent projects because there's, there's something very energizing and inspiring about, hey, I'm not going to wait for some big backer. I'm just going to start. I'm going to do this. However, there are realities with that. So there, what is the, the model there of how you continue to do the work that you do? Is it a labor of love still? <laughs> it's still a labor of love. We talk all the time about how to get funding without having to compromise our editorial values. 
Uh, sponsored content is a thing that we have discussed, but we can't figure out how to do it while still maintaining the clarity and independence of voice. So this is definitely a thing we're struggling with. We don't have an easy answer for that. And for now, we're purely self-funded. We did a small fundraising drive, which uh, helped us fund a few original stories towards the end of last year. And we'll probably do that again after the dust settles from the holidays and people are feeling maybe not so tapped out from buying presents. Um, so, but honestly, we just don't know. We don't have an easy answer for it. And we are, uh, we're constantly discussing and searching for a way to get funding that allows us to maintain our editorial independence and still do the kind of things, still produce the kind of stories we'd love to see in the world. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, I think that's a topic of conversation from a, on a lot of projects that a lot of people are working on of how do we fund this without compromising it? How do we keep it going? How do we grow it without losing its beauty and wonderfulness and all that. I think that's those are a lot of people struggling with those same things. But uh, I, for those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm going to be sure and tweet out links after the program so you can check out the State Cider and, and give them some love and all that good stuff. And so I, want, I don't want to let you go without talking about your book. You have a memoir coming out in the year ahead, so big plans for you. Tell me about that. Oh, I do. Thank you for asking about it. I just signed a contract for it um, about a month ago, so it still feels very new and very terrifying. And uh, it's an 80s travel memoir. I did some crazy travel in the early 80s. I went overland through Pakistan and India. I was in Israel and Egypt in the early 80s when the war with the PLO and Lebanon started. So I'm still kind of figuring out my elevator pitch for it. So I'm feeling a little bit on the spot right now. It's all good. <laughs> but, um, but I'm calling it sort of I'm, my, my working pitch is that it's my dirtbag 80s travel memoir. <laughs> Why dirtbag? Why dirtbag? It was rough. It was, it's rough travel. It is not, it is not vacation travel. There's, you know, hitchhiking and sleeping at hedges and, uh, just trying to find your way through a, a world without any money. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, travel writing is such an interesting genre. It's, as I said, one of my favorites. And I, I really just, I, I mean, you've got the, you're living the dream is what I think. I think you're writing about all this cool stuff. And, um, it's so lovely. What, what is, what do people miss about travel writing or what do people not know that you wish they knew about travel writing? In general, it's a very difficult way to make a living. You know, it's uh, travel writing, just like any other sector of media, the wages have been pressed downward and downward and downward. So most travel writers I know have day jobs. They're doing something else on the side. Well, I, so, I hear you. Yes, <laughs> that's a thing we all do in this business for sure, for sure. Yeah, yeah. There's that, and, and also the kind of stories. So the States Art is actually a really good example of the kind of stories that we publish. We have this beautiful piece from Adam Carlin about northern Alaska. It's a fantastic story, and we're stunned that he couldn't sell it somewhere else. Hmm. So there is also a limited market for these deeply felt narrative kind of stories about travel. Service Work and travel still is very sellable. That's the kind of stuff that helps people travel. But the markets for these uh, deeply personal narrative stories about travel are smaller and smaller, and it's increasingly difficult to get paid to publish that kind of work. Most travel writers that I know, it's what they'd like to be doing. Sure. What has what has the impact been of social media? In particular, I'm thinking about these, these like Instagram accounts with, I don't know, some like 
influencer. I'm going to do radio air quotes on that. Influencers. Just like <laughs> I saw them. <laughs> strangely funded. Like, how is this person a millionaire and just 25 years old and traveling the world in very beautiful destinations? How does that work? What is that impact on the professional travel writer? Um, you know, that's, that's such a big question. Um, I mean, it's that I think that the existence of those types of positions is a result of the depression of media markets, right? They've filled the gap, right? When you work in an industry that is so heavily aligned with advertising and PR, those kinds of things are very attractive to them, whereas having an editorial file wall between content and advertising that you get in more traditional media markets is not as attractive to PR and advertising companies. So those folks are able to make a living in ways that people who are walking a very hard line about investing or being paid to produce certain types of content are not, right? It's not, folks who have like strict editorial guidelines aren't able to take that kind of money. So I think that a lot of PR and advertising has shifted to rather than buying ads, they just buy directly the content and that's why those kinds of accounts exist. Right, right. It's, it's, one, very different thing to send someone to a hotel to have a fabulous time on Instagram versus someone who wants to maintain editorial integrity is not going to necessarily identify themselves as a as a reviewer or something like that. Like very very different things. But I've I've yeah they're, they're they're just completely different animals. Yeah yeah I've wondered though about how that would impact a travel writer. Well I wish I had another hour with you. I I've just I love the statesider. <laughs> I love the work that you're doing, and uh, I'm going to tweet out links to it. So everybody, sign up for updates. This is There's so much crap in our inboxes right now. This is not going to be one of those things. This is a delight. Every time it lands in my inbox, I'm happy to see it. I always read it. I love it. Thank you so much for the work you're doing, and thank you for talking about uh, all of it with us today. I really appreciate you, Pam. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. And uh, we, uh, we love to hear from our readers, so I hope that if we get new signups from uh, if we get new signups from this, that folks will say hello to us on Twitter. We like hearing from you. All right. You know your homework, folks. Say hi on Twitter to the nice people at the State Cider. All right. Thanks so much, Pam. Appreciate your time. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Amy. Bye-bye. All right. So we're going to take a little break. Back in just a little bit, we're talking with a very smart person from J.D. Power about a recent survey you're going to want to hear about, especially before that holiday travel. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. Seven twenty WGN. It's Amy Guth. Thanks so much for being with me today. I always appreciate you sharing party or Saturday with me or whenever we're on this time of year. You don't know. You never know what host you're going to get because we're all like switching shifts, doing things, filling in for each other. We don't know where Scott Katoon is today, but no, he's out doing some stuff or not feeling well. So I'm covering for him from noon to one. So I'm with you till then. Right now, we are joined by Mike Taylor of J.D. Power. They're, J- I love talking with the people at J.D. Power. I really do. Every time I learn so much stuff, I'm always so excited to talk with them. They know so much stuff. But there is a travel study. It's a last travel study uh, release for the year. And this one is specifically around airlines, which is a topic we've been talking a lot about lately. So I'm very excited to talk about this one. Mike, welcome to the program. Thanks for being with us today. You're quite welcome. So talk to me about the Airline International Destination Satisfaction Study. That just flows right off the tongue. Uh, but talk to me it about... It does. 
<laughs> Talk to me about this one because I, I feel like we've been talking about airlines so much lately, especially here. We've got Boeing headquartered here in Chicago. They've been going through so much stuff that's impacting airlines, that's impacting travel and so on. Our airport is facing this big renovation. We're talking about how to fund that. So I feel like this we have been talking a lot about airlines and flights here in this city. But tell me about this report and what you look at it for that. Well, at J.D. Power, we interviewed about 6,400 people who had taken an international flight in the last month, uh, depending on when we asked them. Uh, and we basically looked at their overall satisfaction with the various brands. And we looked at travelers who were based in North America. That would be Canada flying to Asia, and then that same demographic flying to Europe. And uh, at the end of it, we found that we had two winners uh, going to Europe. Uh, you know, it was... Uh, uh, Turkish Air uh, was, was somewhat of a surprise winner, at least to me it was. I didn't expect them to win, but they had, did very well across the board as far as, you know, getting people to a destination on time and then having really good food and beverage service, uh, which, uh, which is some of interesting topic if you know how food and beverage is done at, uh, at 30,000 feet. And then on the Asian side, it was Japan Airlines uh, that had won. Uh, who did a great job, again, across the board, getting people to where they were on time, having nice, clean airplanes, and also uh, having that interpersonal relationship with travelers as they, uh, as they went on from North America to Asia. So as you note in this report, there's, there's kind of nine factors that you're looking at here when you're looking at these airlines. In-flight services, cost and fees, aircraft itself, the flight crew, check-in, boarding, immigration, baggage, and reservation. That's a lot of stuff. What Putting these studies together, I mean, I know that's the game you're in, and that's what you do so well, but how, what, what kind of time is into each of this, sunk into each of these, these study projects? You mean how long does it take to take the survey, that kind of thing? Well, like once you get all the data, that's a lot of stuff to compile and do. <laughs> Actually, we're used to doing it. We've been doing a study of North American Airlines, it's operating in the U.S. and Canada for about 22 years now. So we thought, we'd like to think we have our act together. I think you do. A little, bit about the, uh, yeah, a little bit about the airline experience. So we basically modeled it after that and asked a few questions that would only happen when people traveled internationally. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's how we put it all together. Yeah, I think this is really interesting. Now, why did you say Turkish Air was a surprise? Who did you think would be or who has historically rated in that category with European travel? Oh, wow. You know, I'm not supposed to guess, uh, but I would have guessed, you know, Cathay Pacific on the Asian side of things and on the European side of things, my guess would have been British Airways, which finished third. But one of the things about flying at 30,000 feet is that you lose a lot of your ability to taste things. Um, and uh, one thing that people raved about in their in our what we call open-ended questions, those are questions where people just answer in normal English and not with a number. Um, they said the food was fantastic at Turkish Airlines. It's probably a little heavier spiced hmm. than they might enjoy if they tasted it at sea level, but thousand feet it tasted great. I didn't. Um, so that was one of the big strengths of Turkish Airlines. I, I did not know that that you you don't taste as well at thirty thousand feet. I had no idea. Yeah, that's exactly right. Huh. Yeah, that's exactly what happens. See what I'm saying? Strangely enough, yes. Every time I talk with the people from J.D. Power, I learn so much stuff like that. That's really interesting. What I think is so interesting also is I feel like when you're going on a trip or you're thinking about going on a trip, you're like, oh, I've always wanted to go to XYZ destination. People will give you a recommendation of the flight to take based on one experience. They'll be like, oh, well, don't take this airline because this one time this happened. Or, oh. 
take this airline because I sat by the most delightful person. You're like, that has nothing to do with this flight. But I think it's so interesting, the recommendations we give each other based on strange things sometimes, really strange things, but usually on one experience. I like to talk with people who, like, tell me the route you fly all the time. If you go to, say, Amsterdam several times a year for business, that's the person I want to talk to. Or like J.D. Power folks who are like compiling all this stuff. I think that's that's very interesting. What do you think is like misunderstood or often overlooked about about travel and the way we approach travel? Well, one of the things that does happen is people will remember the you know one negative experience. They could have 20 great experiences in a row, but the one time their flight was late or someone was rude to them uh, or didn't accommodate their request, that's the thing they like to talk about. I think that's just human nature. Yeah. Um, but over the you know past so eight or nine years, airline travel has gotten so much better, not only as a value for how you can go on a dollar spent on a ticket, uh, but also the type of aircraft, the streaming services, the entertainment, the food. It's all gotten so much better in the last eight or nine years on average. Of course, there is that one time where something goes wrong, and most of the time it's the weather. And uh, the airlines really have no control over the weather. And uh, that's one of the things I like to tell the, when I'm at a cocktail party and ask, answer questions as well. You know, if there were a thunderstorm, uh, you know, uh, over your destination, would you really, really want to fly into it? That's right. And uh, everybody wants to land the aircraft safely. And we've got a tremendous record, especially in North America, on safety. Uh, I think there's only been one death attributed in flight uh, in the last two years. Uh, flying in North America, and that's millions and millions of people flying. So it's safer, it's easier, it's cheaper. The entertainment on the aircraft is much better. The food is much better. The choices you have are much better. It's really a golden age of flying, believe it or not. But it is, you know, one of those things that people just like to concentrate on the negative. Yeah, I mean, as a five foot ten person, I think there's a little bit of improvement that could be made. I'm not going to lie. I, I'm always like my knees are always getting banged on the seat in front of me because, you know, it's not tall person. Friendly. Uh-huh. It's really not tall person friendly. And I think those little what are those gadgets called you put in the seat up front, in front of you so the person can't put their seat back? That's kind of mean. I don't, oh, brakes? Yeah. I, don't yeah. Like those. Kind of <laughs> I have seen those. Uh, I've never seen them in use, but I have seen them online. Yeah, I've um, seen them. I've and, seen, I, I think they're mean. I, I'm not going to do it. I wouldn't do it. Yeah, I think they're mean as well. Um but, you know, there are some airlines uh, that don't allow you to recline. There's Spirit Airlines on a lot of flights doesn't allow you to recline uh, because they want to put as many seats on the aircraft as possible. And that's another thing that goes in and out of style. Um, you know, you can only fly, you know, aircraft is a very expensive acquisition. It's a couple hundred million dollars to buy an aircraft, and you want to get as much return on that as possible. So airlines shift between putting a lot of seats into the aircraft and reducing what's called the pitch, which is that you know, leg room or knee room that, that you're at five foot ten or a little sensitive to, um, and uh, getting more seats on the plane and getting more revenue per flight. Uh, and then passengers to plane, satisfaction goes down, loyalty goes down, and then they kind of relax those again. And it kind of goes in and out like an accordion every year, year or three uh, as far as how much pitch is available on particular aircraft. Yeah, that's exactly right. All right, well, we got to take a little break, but when we come back, I have some questions. They're a little more local. I want to talk a little bit about O'Hare and Midway and perhaps United sure. Airlines. United's been in the news a lot lately, too. The way they're kind of changing and maybe trying to shift to uh, dealing with like their, their flight loyalty program. So lots of questions, lots of things to talk about. We'll be right back here on 720 WGN.
720 WGN. It's Amy Guth with you till one o'clock. Thanks so much for being with us today. We have been chatting away with our friend from J.D. Power. We're talking with Mike Taylor. Every time the J.D. Power folks join us, I always learn so much stuff. So I really appreciate him joining us today. But we've been talking about airlines because that is the thing, right? We want to feel comfortable, especially if you're going to be on a flight for a long time, international flights. And so we were talking a little bit about European and Asian routes where we would be traveling. And so Japan Air got some of the highest marks for Asian routes and for European routes, Turkish Air had some of the higher marks, and we were just talking about that. Um, Mike, what other airlines did well in this survey, and do all of them fly into either O'Hare or Midway? I assume most things fly into O'Hare. Uh, yes, most of them would fly into O'Hare. Midway's, of course, got a lot more domestic routes. Uh, but Delta uh, did very well in the study. It finished fourth in the uh, European section and it finished second in the Asian division. And United Airlines, your hometown airline there, finished at the average for flights to Europe, which is a little bit of an overperformance for them. They generally uh, are found below the average in North America. But they've invested a lot in their overseas routes because, again, it's one of the more profitable you know, pieces of business is uh, flying these long-haul flights, and they've uh, not only the aircraft, but the service on these flights. And Delta's made a point of it to, make, uh, to sell, you know, how the back of the cabin, you know, the normal economy seats are in their aircraft going to Europe and to Asia. Uh, they've been a, made a, a major marketing push on that, and they're delivering on that. People actually did uh, find that they did like it when they flew Delta on long-haul flights. I call that the uh, the budget-friendly first class when you get – to me, it's like jackpot when you're at the back of the plane and you get the whole row to yourself because you can kind of, you know <laughs> – it's budget first class. Yeah, that's real estate <laughs> that you haven't paid for. That's the way I look at it. I know. Uh, and that used to be a lot more. That used to be a lot more common. Not so much common anymore, especially out of the Chicago area and where I live, which is in the East Coast. My home airport's LaGuardia and JFK. Oh boy. Um, and they, it's called the load factor. Um, so if you really want to sound like you're in the know, you can ask your uh, flight attendant when you're boarding the aircraft, "What's the load today?" And they'll tell you a percentage, and that's the percentage of seats that are filled. And it's uh, creeping up to an all-time high. Uh, again, it will be in the high 80s, low 90s for most of the routes going out of O'Hare and out of New York. And do you think, I mean, it, generally speaking, air travel is, is growing, and I think there's a lot of factors for that. It's probably a little more accessible than it used to be. I think, it, I mean, it, decades ago was really quite an affair to get onto an aircraft, but now it's a lot more commonplace. Plenty of people commute for works to other cities, things like that. What are we going to be seeing maybe in the year or two ahead? Uh, what does data suggest we're going to see from airlines coming up? Well, the biggest improvement that the airlines can make, is, according to our studies at J.D. Power, is providing you entertainment while you're in the aircraft. It's still not that seamless experience that everybody tries to achieve. Uh, as I tell our airline clients, you know, it should be at one point in the future, it's going to be like you're visiting your neighbor that you've already got the Wi-Fi router password to. And then you just walk into their home and you're automatically connected. You don't do anything and you can start watching Netflix or uh, chat away or do email and there's nothing else you have to do. Uh, and that day will come. Uh, it just takes a little, little time to get there. It's very expensive to upgrade the streaming and Internet connect connectivity on aircraft. And some of the smaller aircraft just don't have the room in the actual aircraft itself to put that equipment in. Uh, but eventually the technology is going to catch up with it, and uh, it's going to be just like you and I sitting down and watching 
you know, the crown or uh, Game of Thrones or whatever we'd like to do in our own living room, except we'd be flying at 35,000 feet. That's right. That's right. I, I think that's very, I'm still kind of stuck on this thing about not being able to taste as well in the air as you can on the ground. That's fascinating. Oh, sure. I, I had no idea. Yeah, you you basically lose about 30% of your taste buds' ability to differentiate, uh, you know, taste. In fact, there's, there, there used to be a guy, I don't know if he still has a job, but uh, his job was to go around tasting wines at 35,000 feet and giving his opinion of which wines should be served in cabin and which shouldn't. Uh, I thought that was a great job. And I, you know, I don't know why I never applied for it. No kidding. I want that job. <laughs> that sounds like an, yeah. I'll, I'll fly around and drink wine on planes. No problem. I will excel at that job greatly. That's very, very interesting. Well, I got I to gotta read more about that. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, I'm not only going to tweet out this study and, and all of this kind of data, but I also I'll, whatever I find about taste at 30,000 feet, I'll tweet that out too because I think that's really, really interesting. Well, I really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I think especially as uh, travel has you know ramped up for the holidays, people traveling, people get stressed out at the airport. I've seen a lot of tweets from people on, uh, you know, on busy travel days kind of being disgruntled, but it's always good to have data and information when we go to the airport. So I really appreciate your time today, Mike Taylor from J.D. Power. Thanks so much. You're quite welcome. All right. We'll talk to you next time. All right. So um, I think this is such a great topic. I think it's so important that we're talking about this stuff. I, I mean, Look, I, I think the, the J.D. Power folks are so interesting because I want this kind of data, right? I want this um, I want this stuff connected to everything I do. I think it's really, really interesting and always good. So again, if you follow me on Twitter, I'm at Amy Guth, G-U-T-H on Twitter. I'll be sure and share all this stuff that we just talked about because I think that's really interesting. But I got to I got to take a break here in a minute because I cannot wait to to Google this thing about tasting food and wine at 30,000 feet, because that seems really interesting. I also really thought it was interesting what he was saying about, um, about, you know, advances we might be seeing soon in, in like Wi-Fi on planes. I mean, I think that's really, that's going to be a good one when you can solve that one. People just get on the plane. Although I would say this, tell me what you think, Ashley. There is something satisfying about when you don't get Wi-Fi on the plane. Sometimes you have to because you're like, I got to get this ready before I land. I got to do this stuff. But sometimes you're like, I actually I'm on a flight and you don't bother me for three hours. It's right. okay. Like Sometimes that's kind of like a relief. I I agree with that. Like sometimes when you're sitting on a train too, you don't get good connection. And it's yeah. kind of like a, a good excuse to disconnect. And it's kind of sad that we have to say it's a good excuse because we can always just put our phone down, you know? know, but sometimes it does feel like we can't because we're always constantly in contact with people. We always have things we have to do. A lot of things involve internet, a lot of emailing, mm-hmm. a lot of projects that need to be done via Google drive. So it is a good excuse to be like, oh, well, I can't help out for on a the flight. Can't help. couple hours because I'm going to be up in the sky and yeah. uh, I'm going to be playing solitaire. Yeah, right. <laughs> or just reading a book without right. anything beeping or, you know, anything to bother me. I'll just sit here and read. I mostly read on planes. Right. Or like just disconnect, read some magazines, catch up on a good novel. I mean, it is really just yeah. a good way to disconnect and unwind separately. It is. It's true. It's very true. Plus, here's the thing. There's a um it's an awkward moment when you're like on a plane and you're just trying to read and you're like, okay, I'm disconnected. And you have a really chatty seat neighbor. That's fine. I've met some really interesting people on planes, fascinating people. But I've also been like, okay, well, I'm going to just just read. I know. And you don't want to be rude. So you continue the conversation without it seeming like you're trying to end it. Right. And at the same time, you're like, I just want to sleep or I just want to 
read. But you're right. Like, I have met a lot of interesting people on planes because you never know who you're sitting next to. You don't want, don't know what they do, where That's they're right. going. So their story is always so interesting. When I strike up a conversation with somebody or if I find myself in a conversation with somebody on a plane, I will usually say... Um, if you know, if you got work to do or you need to take a nap, don't cut me off. Don't don't worry about it. I'm not. I won't be offended. I'll right. say that because it's awkward because there, you don't have the the logical outs that you have if you're say at a at a party or something. You'd go, well, you I, you know, looks like I'm gonna I'm just gonna run to the ladies' room or right. like, oh, looks like I need to refill my drink or whatever. You have an out, but you don't have one there. You're like, well, I gotta sit in my seat next yeah. to you now. <laughs> Thanks, bye. You know, there's no there's nothing to do there to get you physically away from them. And um, one time I was sitting next to a woman who had started a business. She works on film sets. She used to, um, you know, be on the crew side of film sets. She, she did something. She was from here and she did a very unrelated job. And then she said, you know what? I, I'm going to move to Los Angeles and get into the film industry somewhere in her twenties Wow. Or, or sorry, somewhere in her thirties. So she moved to LA, started a new career and realized how much waste is on a film set. You've got craft services where you're feeding people food all day long. And at the end of the day, it gets thrown out. You got sets that get built to look like a home. They get torn down and thrown out. There's all this waste. Um, and even on uh, commercial shoots, she was talking about sometimes there's like, uh, you know, all these, um, I, th- I don't remember if she said it was a Target or some big store, a big box store had an ad for Easter. It was around that time of year. And they had put all this sod on the ground and all these flowers and all this stuff and then threw it all away. So she goes and she connects with, um, she works with film sets to make it zero waste. Oh, wow. So if you have to construct like a kitchen for some kind of food ad, she'll take those components apart and make sure like um, low cost affordable housing gets the cabinets. Or wow. if there's wood that that goes to scrap. And then she had like a warehouse where lower budget filmmakers could, you know, there were some things that weren't necessarily recyclable into a home, but she was like, okay, but you could, if you're a lower budget filmmaker, you might need a wall that's wallpapered and looks like a bathroom sink. You might need that. So you could get it from her for less expensively than you could make a new one. Wow. Yeah, that's really interesting. It was an interest. We had a fascinating conversation and I was flying from the West Coast and suddenly we were on the ground and I was like, oh, oh my God, we just talked for four hours. <laughs> of course, then there's, you know, uh, other, uh, you know, other factors like, I, I mean, it was interesting talking to to Mike Taylor from J.D. Power because you do have an opinion about an airline based on one experience. Like one time I flew South African Airways to Johannesburg and I was sitting next to a man who was not going to give me that armrest. Ugh. And I had the window and there was not an armrest on the window side. You you know, you just have the door or the, mm-hmm. you know, the wall, but there wasn't. So there was, but it was a big gap. There should have been an armrest. So there was a gap. I couldn't actually left. lean against the window and he wouldn't let me have the armrest. And I was, and he had another armrest. And I was like, excuse me, could we, can we maybe trade off with the armrest a little bit? And he was like, no. Wow. And just like threw a blanket on and went to sleep. And then I, I needed to, I had to use the bathroom. I, I mean, we're, it's a 20 hour flight. Like you're on, that's a long haul. <laughs> and I was like, I really have to tinkle. Can you just let me up? <laughs> and he wouldn't, he wouldn't budge. Wow. And he fell asleep so and then I couldn't wake him up. And I was like, okay, he's snoring. He's not dead, but he would not get up. I crawled over that man. I crawled <laughs> over him. Like he was, it was just two seats on that side. We weren't in that main big row. Uh huh. Oh, wow. So I'm window, he's aisle. I'm like, sir, excuse me. I'm shaking him, the flight attendant, and he was just snoring away. So I think he was just ignoring me. So it was a, it was a two seater. And even though he had one all to himself, he wouldn't even, he was budge. not going to budge. Wow. He, was, he was, we were, we were in a fight by the time we landed. <laughs> 
<laughs> we were definitely in a fight. But I was like, um, sir, excuse me, I have to tinkle. Can you let me come? No. And sir please can you move so i just i just climbed over him crawled and i i went basically i landed like in a handstand in the aisle and crawled out in the aisle and the flight attendant's like ma'am is everything okay what are you doing and i was like i really need to use the restroom and this man will not let me up and so i crawled over him we had to stop and refuel and they moved me to another seat i appreciated that so good times now that i'm a little embarrassed about that story but hey we do what we have to right all right um so what we got to do next is we have got to uh, take a break. We got to go to news. We got to do all those good things. Coming back on the other side, we're going to be talking with John Pletz, who is a rec- uh, reporter at Crane's Chicago Business. Interesting news. He's been tracking the lead up to um, recreational marijuana being legalized. And he has a really interesting story that turns out on January 1st, there may not be enough marijuana to meet demand in Illinois when it becomes legal. So we're going to talk to him about that on the other side of news coming up on 720 WGN. 720 WGN, it's Amy Guth with you till one o'clock. Thanks for spending time with me and tuning in. I appreciate you being here. We got lots to do in this hour. We're going to be talking with John Pletz here in just a little bit from Crane's Chicago Business. If you are a regular listener of the Crane's Daily Gist, which is a podcast that I host during the week with all the business stories that you need to know, you have definitely heard from John Pletz because he is a regular on that show. Um, but he has been covering the marijuana industry in Illinois and, and more broadly nationally. There's a lot of interesting things going on there, but he had a story recently that I thought was so interesting. This is the headline. On January January 1st, there will be weed, but not enough. So we're going to talk with him about that, which is interesting. I mean, I think that the process, the ramp up to January 1st has been a pretty fascinating one. Ashley, I don't know if you've noticed this, but I've certainly noticed people are a little more brazen last couple weeks. Seems like people are kind of walking around like, eh, what are you going to do? Give me a ticket? A couple weeks away. It's fine. I mean, I've noticed people like smoking pot on the street. Oh, yeah, definitely. More openly, which you see that anyway. You always have. Right. But, but a, now lately, even, people are like, yeah. I don't care. They're not even trying to hide it at this point. <clears throat> no. Like before you could smell it. You're like, ooh, somebody's, somebody's close. Smoking. And yeah. then uh, now it's like you can pinpoint who is actually doing it. Oh, people will smoke weed and mm-hmm. like make eye contact with you. Yeah, you're like, like, they oh. don't care. You're like, OK, that's what we're doing. <laughs> I mean, it, which is not what you're going to be allowed to do legally come January 1st. It, you got to do it in your home or designated areas. You can't just be like walking around. Same with like, you know, you can't walk down the sidewalk with a beer in your hand. Same kind of deal. You can't right. be doing that. This isn't Vegas. Not Vegas. It's not <laughs> New Orleans. It's not Vegas. It's not what we're doing here. This is Chicago. We're doing things differently. There was a, a potentially a delay. I don't know if you followed this. Um, part of city council, this was started with uh, the Black Caucus of City Council, Push for a delay, and there was a, a motion for a vote. The vote was taken, and there was not going to be a delay. But the idea was, hey, let's delay this until July 1st, because right now only medical dispensaries will be able to also sell recreational come January 1st. In July, you're going to see a lot more people, who, who uh, many of whom have gotten in under the social equity applicant, meaning they are low income, they perhaps have been... Um, had an experience based on the, you know, so-called war on drugs that because 
a lot of communities were disproportionately impacted by that, right? So here's an opportunity to kind of not only are our records going to eventually be expunged, I say eventually, because it's not going to be like hit a button and it's all good. It's going to take a little while. And we've seen that one other in other states. But, um, you know, there's a lot of complicating factors, right? So there was this push to delay that that did not work out in city council this week. So it's it's still on for, for January 1st. And it'll be interesting. We're going to learn a lot. I mean, that's what I my big takeaway from all the conversations I've had with John Pletz about this. It's like, we're going to learn a lot. There's a lot to learn. We won't know till we get there. It's not going to be perfect. We cannot possibly know everything. We we don't know what we don't know yet. We've done a lot that other states have not. We've um, learned from other states. We've certainly taken the social equity applicant part um, much further than other states have. So we'll see. But shifting to just in terms of like supply, I don't know that it's going to go well. So we're going to take a little break. When we come back, we'll talk with John Pletz from Crane's Chicago Business, and we will find out what's what. Back in just a bit here on 720 WGN. I keep my hands on myself. 720 WGN. Hey there, it's Amy Guth with you till 1 o'clock. Thanks for being with us and sharing part of your Saturday. Always grateful to you for that. We're joined now by John Pletz, who is a reporter at Crane's Chicago Business, regular listeners of Crane's Daily Just podcast. You have definitely heard him because I have talked to him many times on that show because he covers so many interesting topics. But he's here today to talk with us about a a recent story that was in Crane's about what's going to happen on January 1st when marijuana becomes legal in Illinois. John, thanks so much for being with us today. How are you today? I'm great. Glad to be here. Thank you so much. Appreciate you taking the time. So talk to me about this story, because it's really taking a look at not only what is supply going to look like and what's that, is it going to be like Black Friday and is it going to run out and when and all that when, when marijuana becomes legal, but it's an interesting insight into the supply process and some complications because marijuana remains illegal on the federal level. So so talk us through this story, if you would. So. Uh, Illinois uh, legalization had a really, really short timetable. Uh, you know, they passed this law essentially June 30th, June 26th, and they wanted to be started by January 1, and that was an aggressive timeline by anybody's standard. You know, most of the states that did this uh, did it over a period of a couple of years, and, you know, they, they passed a referendum, and then it took them a while to figure out how they were going to do it. They had a lot longer lead time. This is a really, really tight time frame, and when you consider that, it takes, you know, six months to build a cultivation facility if you had to build, you know, more growing space. And it takes three months to grow the plants. You know, the, the calendar starts to win out and things get tight. On top of that, the state's medical program has doubled in the past year. So, it, you know, supplies is going to be tight. And particularly um, supply of, you know, what they call flower you know, which is the you know, the smokable part of the plant. Uh, the extracts and the other things you're probably going to be able to get, but you're going to see some long lines in January, you know, on January 1, and you're going to see some long lines that are going to continue for a while. And the people that you talk to in the story who are, you know, have, have more insight and, and kind of stakes in the business here, even they seemed like, well, we, we're not going to really know till we know. We just we're, we're prepared to be to have a shortage, but we don't know when that's going to hit. Any any uh, did anybody have kind of a, a good guess of of what that's going to look? I mean, is it are we talking weeks? Are we talking months? What's that going to be? I've heard that you know short. You'll see shortages, which I mentioned in the story that you know if you're thinking 
you know, St. Patrick's Day, maybe Fourth of July. You know, it could go, it could go into June. You know, just because of the timetable we talked about, there's some supply that's going to come online that had been in the works basically before the law got passed. And you'll see that come online, you know, in early spring, you know, sort of the first quarter. But it's just math. It really is. I mean, everybody I talked to, nobody wanted to predict exactly how much or what the lines were going to look like. But they said, look, you know, we we know that the, the recreational market, depending on, you know, how bullish you are, is anywhere from five to ten times the medical market. And so roughly, best guess was they, they you know, probably doubled or maybe a little more than doubled the capacity or the supply in the state of Illinois in in the last year. And you're going to see a 5 to 10x spike in demand. And that math just doesn't work. Yeah. <laughs> so right. it's going to take a while. Yeah. And, you know, that's, that's what they're going to be living with. Right. I mean, I, I think a lot of people were looking at – at Michigan for for an indication, but I think it's important to note, and I, I think you did note this that that it, it was a very different set of circumstances in Michigan when when things. I mean, Ann Arbor sold out very quickly. There were very very long lines. There was a, like it felt like Black Friday. Like people were going, "Oh my God!" There's still a two hour line at five p.m. I mean, it's a thing. Um, you know, I, I think I don't know that it's fair to look at another state, even how like Nevada was out of it for a while. You know, I think a, in a very very short amount of time, and that was. Big Big news when that happened because everybody thought, oh, Vegas, that's where everybody's going to go and do these do these things. You know, I, I don't know that there is an apt comparison. I think especially in Michigan, it, it doesn't seem like a fair comparison because they've done it in a very, very different way with a much different timeline than we did. You're absolutely right. Uh, it is one of one. And that's why nobody had a great sense of what to expect. Uh, in Nevada, they had uh, plenty of capacity uh, but it was the transportation of getting the capacity uh, to the individual dispensaries. Um, Michigan rolled out uh, in, in just a completely odd fashion. It wasn't statewide, and so nobody really knows what you know what that's going to look like. And in Colorado, it rolled out a number of years ago, but some of the other states were not nearly as tightly regulated on the supply part. So places like uh, Oregon uh, and Washington State and even California had, you know, they allowed a ton of small individual growers. And, you know, in Illinois and many of the other states, it's really tightly regulated. So there's only a certain number of suppliers, and the the approval process for them to um, to grow uh, takes time. And that works against you when you're trying to do something in, in six months. And that's the other thing is that, you know, you can't import from other states. That's the problem is because it's state by state and marijuana is not federally legal, each state has its own rules. Illinois looks like a lot of other states where they're not allowing you to buy supply from out of state. So it doesn't look like any other business. You know, it's not like, it's not like the, as I was telling people this week, it's not like the gasoline business where somebody turns a valve in Oklahoma and problem solved. So, you know, what you have is what you have. Right, right. And then in Michigan, I remember reading that some of the, on that day, what they did in, in Ann Arbor, the day that, that, that people could buy legally, was half of the inventory in a given dispensary that was allotted towards medical marijuana could be retagged and reclassified as recreational. Is that um, essentially how that's going to operate on January 1st here on some level? No. No. So very, very different. And uh, in Illinois, uh, that, and that's one of the issues that came up here in the last week or so, 
is that the state, uh, above all, you know, and this is true for most states, have said, you know, medical first, patients first, and recreational second. Illinois has been very clear. In fact, uh, you know, I think they mandated to the to the various uh, uh, marijuana companies that said, whatever you had on the shelves for the last six months, on average, you have to keep on the shelves and available for patients uh, when January one comes. So no, you don't you don't have that flexibility in that again. All of these things create, you know, pretty tight supply, and nobody knows exactly how tight because, uh, again, you know, Illinois is a, a very large state. They're going online very fast. Um, not even all of the existing medical dispensaries, you know, which uh, they were relying on for recreational, not all of them have been licensed to do recreational. So it's going to be tight. And, you know, you've covered this so much as this as we've been moving towards January 1st, and you and I have talked about this on Crane's Daily Gist several times. All in all, kind of looking back, here we are just, just weeks away from, from recreational marijuana being legal in Illinois. What has, to you, been the most surprising, I don't know, wrinkle or, or unintended consequence of, of this process so far at, from your point of view covering it? Well, I think the the timetable has has sort of been uh the most challenging part of it is that you know until a couple of years ago you had a governor who was completely opposed to um to recreational marijuana so it looked like this was uh not going to be a consideration anytime soon and all of a sudden uh, you know, this was an incumbent governor who was opposed to marijuana, and then you had uh, the the opponent running, you know, J.B. Pritzker, who was very open to the idea, and then it became clear that, you know, Pritzker was going to win. And so in a very short time period, you went from someday we want to have legalized marijuana to we could have legalized marijuana very quickly, and, you know, it went through the session, and so all of a sudden it was there, and then you had a very aggressive time frame. And so you thought, well, how could you do this quickly? And it's just hard, and it's why it has. To, it's why so many states. It just everything takes longer than you think. I mean, I remember one of the marijuana companies, one of the CEOs, telling me a few years ago, and this was back when they were all just getting started. And he's like. Yeah, everything, you know, basically takes twice as long and costs three times as much as you expect. Mm. And that's what's happening now. And, you know, there's a lot of heartburn, a lot of growing pains. And, you know, it's um, it's just sort of it's just sort of fascinating. Um, you know, it's a good problem to have. They'll get it worked out. But nobody knows really what it's going to look like. You know, that's that's sort of one of the things that comes along with, you know, there's, we're what, the 11th state that's legalized. So no, you know, there's no playbook for this yet, and that's what makes it interesting. It also, you know, makes it a little challenging for the people in the business. Yeah, certainly. I mean, by the time the 49th and 50th states get around to this, it'll be quite a very different experience for them, I imagine. I wonder what those states will be. Uh, but, you know, I think the other part of this that's very interesting is just the business side of, you know, here we have Cresco Labs, huge, huge company here. And that that puts us in an interesting spot as we are moving towards more states, um, you know, and, and I mean, Cresco has 
ownership of they're not just Illinois. They're, they're touching a lot of different other states and a lot of different dispensaries. I think that puts us in an interesting place just on the business side of this as we're ramping up to this, too. Yeah, everybody thinks about Colorado and California as, um, you know, they think about the weed business. But, you know, Illinois and particularly Chicago is, is one of the major centers for the marijuana business. Half of the largest, you know, there's about 10 large multi-state operators. Half of them are based in Chicago. You know, GTI and Cresco, which have gone public, are multi-billion dollar companies. Two other large companies here, uh, Verano and Grassroots, are going to be acquired. Another uh, very large operator is Pharmacan. So you have some really big players. Uh, Illinois is one of the biggest places to legalize recreational. And so, yeah, I mean, a lot of the, the marijuana industry, you know, there's, there's, uh, there's a lot of that here uh, in Chicago and in Illinois. It'll be really, really interesting to see how how just the next year goes, because, you know, my my takeaway from from I've read so much the of the work that you've been doing on this on this beat and reporting you've done. And, you know, I really think we're not going to know till we get there. There'll be some growing pains, as you said, but it'll be interesting to just to see how the year ahead shakes out just to kind of watch it as a as a business story. I think it's a really interesting one. Well, thanks so much, John Pletz, reporter at Crane's Chicago Business. Appreciate your time today. Thanks for being with us. Thanks, Amy. All right, we're going to take a little break here in just a bit. More fun coming up after the break on 720 WGN. And 20 WGN. It's Amy Guth. Thanks so much for being with me today. I appreciate you. So I've plugged this a couple times, but I've been live tweeting the show today. So all the links to all the stuff we've been talking about is on my Twitter feed right now. If you go over there, it's all in one thread, one long thing. You can find that link. You can find links to all of the can we agree? Very smart people that I talked to today. I learned a lot from every single guest that we talked to. I love that. That's my favorite thing. I, I always bring hosts or bring guests on because I want to learn from them and I know other people do too. I just like to learn from smart people. That's my jam. So, um, anyway, links to all their stuff is on my Twitter feed right now and you can find that, including that. Um, including the article I was just talking to John Pletz about, who has written many. If you just go to Crane's Chicago Business and search his name, John Pletz, you will find a ton of reporting about uh, about uh, marijuana becoming legal on January 1st. Really interesting. But before we get to January 1st, we got some holidays coming, my friends. Big time. Their Hanukkah starts Sunday night. Christmas is, of course, this week coming up. Um, any funny traditions in your family, Ashley, that you do at holiday time? We we used to set up we we didn't do it this year and I don't know why I think it's just because everyone's busy yeah. you know everyone's work schedule is crazy and you know how it is in this business you never know when you're working you might be working during the whole thing right, anyway yeah exactly so um, we usually put up a, a holiday village like we have all the the small little huts Those and are so the little cute. cute little people yeah. and we usually put it in like our decorative dining room area that we have in our house but we didn't do that this year wait does that mean you have two dining rooms not really one's like like the fancy one that nobody can go in and then the other one's like where we actually eat you know oh yeah yeah okay you know what i mean like the place where you're supposed to eat that nobody goes in because it's always just so clean it's fancy right yeah yeah so um we didn't set that up this year but that's usually what we do and we would listen to music and it's not really like quirky or funny it's just like a cute little thing that we used to do now i'm gonna ask my parents why we didn't do it yeah hold them them to that i gotta say i asked this question the day before Thanksgiving, like, what is the food you've got to have at Thanksgiving? And I had some callers and two stand out 
that I will never forget because I wrote down both of these. One had this amazing story about his grandmother um, had these workers at the house. This was years and years and years ago and realized they hadn't had anything to eat. And so the only thing she had in the house at that point was like leftover turkey and biscuit dough. And she put the turkey oh, and gravy. She put the turkey in a pan, put gravy over it, and then put the biscuit dough on top of it and baked it. And now it's a thing in their family. They make grandma, I think her name was Grandma Evelyn. They make her, um, you know, her, they call it turkey pie. They make that the day after Thanksgiving, which sounded delicious, which oh, I told wow. everyone I talked to at Thanksgiving, <laughs> like, please make this at some point. It sounds delicious. And the other one was this caller who was so funny. And he called and he said he had the sweet potato recipe that is like four ounces of butter, four ounces of brown sugar, four ounces of bourbon, and you dump it over your sweet potatoes. And I was like, what time should I be over? <laughs> that sounds delicious. And that's one. So I think food is a big part of it too. You know, I think we, um, you know, there's special foods this time of year that I think are really special. Of course, I, I'm a purist about a good potato pancake, a potato latka. Right. I, I enjoy my, my good latkas. I like the, I need equal parts of, of sour cream and applesauce on them. No nonsense. I, I, a friend of mine, um, one time I had this Hanukkah party. It was just like holiday party, but I had like, you know, Hanukkah stuff there. And um, my friend brought a date and he, he was like, do you have ketchup? And I was like, oh, the whole room was like, oh, what? Like he, he was like, it's my first time eating these, but they look like French fries. I'm like, okay, don't put ketchup on a latke. I mean, some people like them, but mm, or some people no. like the ketchup. Yeah, no, I couldn't. The applesauce and the sour cream mm-hmm. mixed together, and it's so it's like sweet and tangy and delicious right. with the crispy, salty, crunchy potato. It's so good. I love them. I can't wait to eat them on Sunday. So that's your must-have. That's my must-have. But then, um, so, you know, Hanukkah's about fried foods. So think about, like, in the Middle East, potatoes not easily come by, right? right. So in, in if you're in Israel, there's an Israeli treat this time of year for Hanukkah. Um, they are called sufganiot. They're it's like um it's like a jelly donut, but they're a little more delicious. They're usually a little smaller. Okay. I think they. I mean, sometimes they're like cream or chocolate filled or jam or, um, and some people make them very fancy and beautiful and decorative and sparkly. And so I feel like I always have to kind of have a little of that oh, too because wow. they're really good, really really good. But it depends on what part of the world you're in. Like fried artichokes are big and like, um. Uh, if you're doing that in around the Mediterranean, if right. you're like the people that are celebrating Hanukkah there. So, you know, um, you never know the foods. That said, the Christmas food that I love is peppermint ice cream. Oh, yeah. So good. You can't go without it. It it's is so delicious. good. If you don't have it, it's just kind of like, uh, like if it's not on your dessert menu at the holiday parties, it's like, well, now what? <laughs> we actually have... I don't know where my relatives get it. We are like the we have an Italian family okay. on one side, and then we have a Bohemian and a Polish family on the other. So my okay. dad is Bohemian Polish, my mom's Italian. Okay. So at the Italian um, Christmas Eve party is what we do. My uh, cousins they get a it's like a peppermint cake. It's like a peppermint ice cream cake. Okay, and it's peppermint ice cream. The outside, like the crust, is Oreos, crushed up Oreos. Well, that sounds delicious. And then we top it off with whipped cream. And I don't know oh where my they gosh. get it, but it goes so quick. Like, mm. if you're not there, it's gone. They just get the one, like, it looks like a pie, but it's like... See, a, I would say you do it in a pie shell. Right. Ooh. And it's so good. So I think maybe I would use a casserole dish so I can make more right, of it. Right, just have more <laughs> of it. That's 
what I'm saying. Like, why do we only get one? We should get like four or five. Oh, that sounds know. good. Like, if you don't get there fast enough, you don't get it. It's like a dog eat dog mm. world. Out there. Like, we are standing everyone's in line. for themselves here. <laughs> you team up with a family member. You're like, okay, you get half, I get half. Make sure you Let's grab a do piece. This. Yeah. It's hard. If you get there before I do, get me a piece. Right, yeah, exactly. you got to have make allies here mm-hmm. in this. I love that. Well, if you would like to share a special holiday food that you love for whatever holiday you're celebrating or holidays plural, whatever you're doing this time of year, 312-981-7200. I'd love to hear from you. Mostly because I, I love learning from listeners about the things they make. You know, people really love like Steve and Johnny stuffing. That's right. a thing we, you know, that's a sacred thing. They got to share that. I, I mean, people take that very seriously as well. They should. Anything Steve and Johnny do. I'm, love, I'm a fan of. I right. love them both. I love hearing about new recipes. Like I'm not a yeah. really good cook, but, um, I love hearing about other people's creations and how they made it their own, even though like if they're just, you know, your average Joe, not a professional chef or baker or anything, and they make something that they're proud of, that they made it their own, they added their own recipe, their own secret sauce, their own special treat. And it it really is interesting to see how people come up with their own ideas and how it it really does sound appetizing where you're listening. You're like, wow, you know, that really makes sense. Like I should try to do that. Oh, I mean, that turkey pie was a great example. I was like, I want to do that now. I want like biscuit dough and turkey and gravy. That sounds delicious. Exactly. I mean, I like a good day after Thanksgiving turkey sandwich, but that sounds a little like that sounds like a good cozy, warm Mm -hmm. winter kind of food. That sounds delicious. That sounds so good. One year at Thanksgiving, I I told this on the air a couple of weeks ago. Um, my brother was a baby. My my so my dad. We lived next door to his restaurant, right? So he's busy. He's got two seatings during Thanksgiving. He is so busy. My mom is, um, you know, she's got me. I'm so I'm, you know, probably six or so at the time. My brother is a tiny, just couple months old baby. She's making, getting some Thanksgiving together for this for the family. My dad is working. He's not, you know, so he can't. Uh, be there to to help and she's dealing with a baby who was very fussy at the time and um, you know how you boil the tops of bottles to clean them right to sterilize them she was a little overwhelmed and he was crying and the bottles burned and the dinner burned and everything my dad comes back at this point and I'm running like mom's crying I don't know why (laughs) it's just chaos you know (laughs) burned dinner the burned bottle tops that burning rubber smell it was absolute chaos and so my dad did it I love that scene in a Christmas story when he goes after the dogs come and take the turkey and he's like, we are everybody go upstairs and get dressed. We are going out to eat like that part, because that is basically what my dad did. He's like, everybody get in the car. We're going. And we drove around till we found a place open and it was like a hot dog stand in this little divey place. And we sat there and we ate hot dogs and french fries for Thanksgiving. But we always laugh about that. I mean, even many decades later, uh, my brother doesn't remember because he was such a tiny baby. I remember thinking like, wow, this is fun. We're eating hot dogs yeah. and french fries for Thanksgiving and we have the place to ourselves. It's really fun. So I think, you know, food, our memories get tied to flavors and, um, you know, certain flavors, certain times a year. But also sometimes there's a specific memory that's just kind of fun and great, too. So we're going to take a little break. On the other side of this, uh, again, I want to hear from you if there's a special, unusual food, maybe uh, something that you do in your family. I'd love to hear from you about that. But I also want to talk about what New Year's resolutions you have, because I'm all about this. Let's talk. All right. Back in just a bit on 720 WGN. 
720 WGN. Amy Guth with you here just a little bit longer till one o'clock. We'll be wrapping things up here in just a bit. We've been talking about holiday traditions, especially around food. If there are special flavors or something that you love in your family, we got a caller who didn't, he didn't want to come on air. He was feeling a little shy. Uh, but he said he was kind of, um, identifying with the one year that Thanksgiving went very south in my family when my brother was a baby and I was a little kid and my dad just kind of packed us up and took us all to a hot dog stand. Uh, similarly, he said last year and his family, everybody just packed it up. Things were going wrong, packed it up and went to Burger King and it was an awesome day. So uh, those things happen. But again, 312-981-7200 if you would like to give me a call about a special holiday food that you love and you cannot do without. I also am starting to think about New Year's resolutions. I, I hate to be that person, but I don't know. I think 20, 2018 was rough. So I thought 2019 can't be worse. And it kind of, I don't know, I think a lot of people got a little worn out in 2019. So uh, here's hoping 2020 is really awesome and that you, whatever your resolution is, I hope it's about finding... Um, Peace and calm. I think those are important things to find in the year ahead. That's really all. I'm not really resolving to to do much, but I kind of just want to um, put my put my stress levels um, front and center. I want them. I want to make them a priority to keep them low and nice. So, so we shall see. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna lie, Ashley. I think that um, that Oreo peppermint thing you were describing. I kind of want to eat that after the show now. Right? Doesn't it sound so good? So it's Oreo crust. Peppermint ice cream, whipped cream. Yep. And it, it's so good. I'm into that. All right. I got to go to the store after this. I got to run to Jewel. All right. Okay. We got some callers here. Uh, let's talk to Kim from Naperville. <laughs> Tell me about the holiday food that is part of your special celebration. Hi. Um, yeah. One of the things that we always have um, since I was a little kid on my dad's side of the family, we would make a date pudding, which was very rich, and our family would always be the ones to make it. So I remember as a kid, it was basically like a pound of pitted dates, um, a package of marshmallows, and a package of graham crackers, and you would grind it. So we we had a hand grinder, and um, all of kids would take turns grinding and feeding the different things through the grinder. And so it was quite a process, and you'd use a little milk to get it the right consistency. And when we were a kid, we would have a giant Tupperware bowl full, um, although as the older generation has passed on, not as many people like to eat pudding. So um, we, you know, we have smaller and smaller portions now. Okay, I, I was trying to write that down as you were talking. Marshmallows, dates, and what was okay. the third thing? Graham crackers. Graham crackers. Oh, that sounds yeah. delicious. Yeah, it's just it was basically a package of each. Ooh. And you just grind it all up and use milk to kind of get it to be so it's not too thick and hearty, but it's still very thick. And myself, I can only handle about two tablespoons of it. Then you put a dollop of whipped cream on there, but it's so rich that I can only eat a little bit. Yeah, I was going to say, that sounds so rich and indulgent and wonderful. How good. And then do you do you bake it? Is it warm or no? No, no, no. Yeah, it's just you grind it all up and put it in the fridge and that's it. Ooh, okay, I might have Cook to it try out. that. That sounds really good. All right. Well, thanks so much for the call, Kim. Happy holidays to you. Sure. Happy holidays. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. All right. Well, that sounds... I'm 
I'm here for that. That sounds pretty good. Anything, I mean, look, anything marshmallow, I can be persuaded to eat that. That sounds good. I'll even eat like the Jello with marshmallows in it. I think it's so good. I think it's so delicious. Um, let's go now to Lori, who's here in Chicago. What is your food that you must have for the holidays? So my aunt uh, married an Italian 100 years ago, and she learned from her mother-in-law how to make arancini. Yes. And, you know, the Italian rice ball? Yes. And so she passed that down to me, and they're so delicious and really big, almost a meal. They're about the size of a baseball. And so I learned how to make those, and you serve those with uh, the tomato sauce, the gravy, and they're kind of time-intensive, labor-intensive to make, but so worth it. Mm -hmm, So I I, I try to make those, you know, maybe every other year because it's it's a really, it's a lot of work, but my family loves them, so that's really something that we look forward to in the holidays. Oh, that's a wonderful addition to this list because they are so delicious. How long does it take you to make them? Oh, gosh. It's probably about an hour, hour and a half. And you can make them ahead and then put them in the oven to warm before you serve them. So you you could probably make them a day ahead and then, you know, just put them in the oven and serve them um, when you're ready to give them to the family. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's time intensive. It is. I know. Every time I've ever had one, I've always thought like, you know, bless the person who made this because it couldn't have been easy to make. (laughs) They're so, they're (laughs) so delicious. Wonderful. Um, I also, um, I do have a New Year's resolution. Uh, 2018 and 19 have been really, really rough for me. I um, have been going through a a pretty terrible divorce. And um, actually, the court date to declare me divorced is on New Year's Eve. (gasps) Wow. So you're starting with a clean slate like, whoa, for 2020. Oh, my goodness, yes. And my New Year's resolution is to get my mojo back. (laughs) Lori, I love it. I wish you all the mojo in the world. That sounds like a wonderful... What are you going to do first to get your mojo back? Um, I think have a drink. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I love that. Well, I wish you wonderful, very happy holidays, and good luck with everything in court. I'm sure it's going to go as well as possible. And I wish you all the mojo and a wonderful year in 2020. Thank you so much for the Thank call. You. Thank you very much. Oh, my gosh. Wow. She's got a lot going on right now. <laughs> that's, a, that's a thing. Ashley, do you have any resolutions for the year ahead? I need to save more. Like, I'm a spender. I go out to eat. I go buy a lot of clothes. Mm-hmm. So my New Year's resolution is to just save more okay. and really start buckling down on the expenses. Sure, sure. All right. Is there a place you're going to cut first? I'm going to cut the going out to eat. So okay. I guess my New Year's resolution would be cooking more. like Which you said you don't at, do. Yeah, right. I don't <laughs> cook. So getting better at cooking, getting better at making my own meals, not relying on fast food or, you know, being impatient and just wanting to eat after work instead of taking the time to create a meal. I mean, obviously, I'll have my days, but... sure. I think that'll be my New Year's resolution. Cooking more, spending less. See, I love to cook. I love it. That's my thing. I love cooking. It relaxes me. It chills me out. I'm with you, though. When I'm hungry, I need to eat. Like, I need to eat now, right? Like, when you're ready, you're ready. And then you're like, I I don't have the patience to cook anything right now. Most of the time, I've got food in my purse. (laughs) I'm not kidding Just a backup, just in case. (laughs) I got a little bag of snacks right here, sitting right next to the board right now, just because... 
I know that I'm real crabby if I let myself get too hungry and then nobody wants to hang out with me. So I, you know, I gotta, I gotta keep it real like that. So there's that. All right. Well, um, it's been a pleasure to work with you again, miss. Thank you. I know. It's been a while. Can't wait for the next time. I know. When are you, when are you back next? I'm back the 28th. I'll be doing Saturday night, the 28th from 7 to 10. Ooh, you might see me. All right. I don't right. think I'm working that shift, but I will be around. You'll be around. All right. Well, thank you so much. I appreciate you. And uh, Bob Kessler's in the newsroom. Thank you to him for doing all the news things. He's giving me a thumbs up on the camera. Right. Good times. Um, so we're going to get you to break. We're going to do all that good stuff, get you to news, all those things. And I will see you all next time. Thanks so much.